This is the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, episode number 30. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, thanks so much again for tuning into the podcast. For today's episode, I invited another guest to come and share their tips and strategies and insights with us. So before we jump into that, as always, I want to invite you to join the private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group. You can access that at hackyourwealth.com FB. Definitely encourage you to join us there. It is a place for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I'm in there every single day, often multiple times a day, and I try to respond to every question and comment there. And it's a place where people can ask about financial independence, early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, side business income, online income, career transitions, career advice, or just ask about whatever's on their mind related to personal finance or career-related issues. Definitely encourage you to check that out. It's a great, friendly, helpful group of people, and we would love to have you there. Again, hackyourwealth.com slash FB. All right, let's jump into today's interview. My guest today is Aaron Helley. Aaron is a 14-year Army veteran who, after returning from deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, became a real estate investor specializing in house flipping. In addition, she purchased 19 doors during her first year as a buy-and-hold investor, all while juggling a toddler and newborn. Her portfolio is currently a mix of single-family homes, a duplex, a triplex, and a tenplex, and she regularly flips houses in the Nashville and Clarksville metro areas of Tennessee while also building a coaching and education business to help other real estate investors. Aaron, sounds like you've been incredibly busy, so thank you so much for taking time to join us today to share tips and strategies about how to rehab fixer-upper properties for maximum impact. Yes, of course. Thanks for having me. I would love to start just by learning more about your background. How did, Can you tell us, um, take us back to the time and tell us sort of the, the, the story of how did you get into real estate investing and become an expert on rehabbing and remodeling? Yeah, so I have always been around construction my whole life. Um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, so I think I sort of have those bones in my body. Um, but I, I really didn't think that I would ever do this more than just a side hustle. I thought that I was going to stay in the Army for 20 years, um, and you know, life happened. <laughs> we had kids. Things changed very quickly. And um, I sort of just slowly started looking into investing, and took me a while to jump the gun on my very first one. But once I bought my first investment and I really saw, you know, I saw the the value of that property appreciate. I saw the money coming into my bank account every day. And I, and I built a relationship with the tenant, which was really cool too. Um, and I was just hooked after that. And I, you know, I just was like, you know, I've, I got to figure out how to scale this. I just want to turn this into something more than just a side gig. And it slowly has become you know, almost like a full-time thing at this point. Got it. So it sounds like you have a portfolio of buy and hold properties, which um, uh, you invest in for sort of long-term, but then you also have uh, a business where you are flipping homes. It sounds like uh, largely in, in Tennessee. I would love to talk a little bit about sort of some of the things you've learned around rehabbing and remodeling, how to be strategic when doing this. Um, can you help us understand uh, first, I, I guess to even set the stage, uh, so we can get a sense of kind of your experience and background, how many homes at this point have you flipped, rehabbed and flipped? Um, I should know an exact number, but last year 
I did seven. Um, and the year before that, I only did one. And that's just me, myself, you know, just using my structures. And I've partnered um, or been involved in some way in a handful of other ones um, and just finished up one this year. Got it. Okay. So in your experience in doing rehabs, what are some of the most impactful uh, upgrades and renovations that rehabbers with, you know, a finite budget can do for maximum impact? And, you know, sort of common wisdom is, you know, kitchen, bath, flooring, and paint. Uh, but uh, even if those are where the sort of the, the, the gravity wells are, are there specific tips or strategies you can share when it comes to like specific things to do in those areas or if there are other areas as well? What are specific types of upgrades, uh, specific types of products and materials that you use for maximum impact? So I think that the one thing that applies to every type of flip, you know, whether it's a starter home in a, in a C-class neighborhood or a, a million dollar home in a, in a really affluent neighborhood. The biggest thing that you have to do as a flipper is look at all the major systems and make sure that you're upgrading all the major systems. So I mean, you know, HVAC, whatever the heat and air conditioning sources, electrical, plumbing, you know, and then you've got to look at the bones and the structure and that applies across the board. But, and that's pretty much the only thing that applies to every single house. When you're looking at any individual property, the key is figuring out what the comps are. And what people don't really realize necessarily is the value of any individual home isn't necessarily based on what is within the four walls of that home. It has to do with the surrounding properties. It has to do with the market activity. So you have to realize that when you are renovating you know, a starter home, that the comps have, you know, um, for mica countertops and carpet and vinyl or laminate flooring, you're not going to get a significant amount of more money by putting hardwoods in there or putting granite in there because the, the property, it just won't support those types of upgrades. So you'll spend that money, but you won't get it back. And so the best thing you can do as an investor is or excuse me, as a flipper, is thoroughly analyze the comparables. And so a real estate agent can pull those for you. I think it's important that you have a real estate agent on your team, um, multiple even. And they need to give you a really good idea of what you're looking at. Properties that have sold in the last six months in the smallest possible radius, you know, ideally even in the same neighborhood on the same street. And you need to get a really good idea of what you're working with. And my goal is always to just make it one notch above the next comparable. You know, I want it to be the nicest street on the block, but only slightly nicer. And that doesn't mean upgraded per se. That doesn't mean more expensive finishes. It just means more appealing in some way or another, which will depend on who the buyer is. So you have to do all that research, figure that out. And so I recently did, I actually just recently finished two renovations, one in November that was, absolutely a starter home sold for $230,000 and just got an offer on my most recent flip that's under contract for $600,000. They're both within Nashville, but just obviously a very different demographic, a very different type of renovation. The major systems cost about the same in both of those houses, even though the renovation on the $600,000 house was cost four times what the other one did. But so in that lower priced house, 
we just had to get creative on how to make it a little bit more appealing to the buyer. Um, we did these cool like tiled countertops, which some people loved, some people hated. Our buyers loved them. Um, and we did some cool drop light fixtures, which were really inexpensive. And then just a fancy backsplash, which was fairly inexpensive, but definitely an upgrade for that area. And the buyer loved it. So there are ways to, you know, sort of upgrade it without spending a lot of money, but your upgrades just need to appeal to and be relevant to the demographic that you're going after. So hopefully that that's a long answer, but hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And so I guess to make it pragmatic for folks, how do you uh, do you go to open houses in an area before you, you know, purchase a, a fixer property that you're planning to to flip to see to kind of basically uh, temperature check what the um, surrounding properties actually have in them and then sort of taking a, a mental heuristic for what the average is to figure out how to go, you know, just one notch, slight, one notch slightly above that? Or what is your process for developing that vision for what you need to have, but not too much more? So I think that what you just talked about is a great way to get an idea, um, especially if you're living where you're investing and you have the capability of going to other houses um, and figuring that out. Uh, if you're not, if you're, if you're investing from a distance, like I am, you, I think sort of over time, you kind of get an idea of what area has what type of finishings. Um, and then I just mostly look at pictures at this point, you know, I, I'll get a neighborhood, I'll get a, a specific area of Nashville or Clarksville, and I'll just all automatically have an idea of who the buyer is going to be. And that's just based on my experience as a real estate agent as an, and as an investor. And then I lived there for a couple of years too. So I have a you know, pretty good lay of the land that comes with experience. But if you don't have that experience, you can do, like you said, go to open houses, walk through, just drive around the neighborhood. You know, you'll, it'll, it'll come to you fairly quickly. Um, and then you can, just get pictures from your real estate agent. So typically what my agents do for me is send me all the comps and then they send me what the closest comp looks like. So if I'm looking at a 1200 square foot, three bedroom, two bath house, they'll send me the most recent sale that meets like very close to those, you know, numbers, same size, similar layout, whatever. And then I can see exactly what upgrades they have in them. And, and, you know, renovation flipping is, is very common. So it's easy to find a comp that's just been flipped for the most part. And you just kind of, um, take it from there and see, see what your budget can accommodate. Got it. Could you, uh, so to that end, could you help us understand maybe like walk through the end to end process for how you execute a rehab, like from the initial property visit, I know it sounds like you're looking at the systems, the trying to get a sense of the bones of the home. Um, but in particular, what are the markers that you're looking for? What are you trying to size up? Um, and do you follow at this point, having done this now a number of times, a standardized playbook of sorts to plan things out, design the look and feel based on what you see comparables, uh, containing, getting materials, getting your crew scheduled, project managing the whole thing, basically help us understand kind of the life cycle of a rehab. If you could walk us through your process, maybe using some examples from your own projects. Yeah. So that's a great question. I'm a, I'm a big systems person. Um, and now that I've, I've moved away from where I'm investing, systems are even more critical. And because I've built these systems, I'm now able to replicate them for my coaching clients. So something I recently started doing for those, those that I'm coaching is 
have like basically managing an entire renovation for them, um, finding them the property, taking it all the way through to the sale. And, you know, the only, and then teach them the process along the way. So you have to have that process really figured out, really laid out. So what that process looks like is first you have to have the deals coming to you. And that's the most important part. And I think the hardest part for most new investors to wrap their head around they you know, they're, they're saying to themselves, there's no deals. I can't compete. How am I ever going to find it? And that's, that's a very bad attitude to have because there are plenty of deals. Um, you just have to get, put yourself out there and get the right network of people bringing you deals. And lots of people can bring you deals. Um, you know, you can find them yourself on Craigslist or Facebook marketplace. You can network with wholesalers, um, and then real estate agents. And you can even, you know, you'd be surprised at how many ways you can find deals. So that's step one is getting the deal. Once you have a deal, I always run the numbers just based on some assumptions. And I will, you know, look at what the comps are and figure out a general idea of what I think the renovation will cost. And that, you know, with experience, you can kind of figure out a ballpark. Um, But at this point, I always overestimate. Um, So I'll underestimate what I think I can sell it for. And I'll overestimate what I think it will cost to renovate it. And if the numbers still work, and I'm still able to make the margin that I'm looking for, um, you know, 10% return on investment, 50% return on investment, whatever it is that you're looking for, um, then I would send a contractor out there to go look at it. The contractor will walk through um, some, well, sometimes they can, sometimes they can't, if it's an auction house or if it's occupied by and a wholesaler selling it, sometimes you can't get inside of it. So there can be a little bit of unknown, um, in that regard. So when there's unknowns like that, you have to just assume the worst. Otherwise you're going to put yourself in a really bad position. So anyway, you figure out as much as you can about the house as possible, which is never going to be everything. So you always have to build in those contingencies, make sure that you have a little bit of a buffer on your rehab budget, and then you make your offer. And if your offer is accepted and you're under contract and you're moving towards closing, for me, the hardest time, the the most work I have to put into a flip comes from contract between the contract getting signed and the closing date. Because in that, in that time frame, I have to go, you know, lock in the financing, whether it's, you know, whether I'm using private venture capital or hard money or whatever it is, you know, you got to get all that figured out. You've got to coordinate with the title company to make sure that everything's on track. They have everything they need. They have your entity or your personal name, information, things like that. You have to get your insurance policy, and then you have to hire your contractor or contractors, which if this is your first time, that can be very timely. So I would recommend that before you even go into offering on a property, you have a list of contractors that you trust, that you've vetted, that you can use when the time is right. So once you get the scope of work from the contractor at this point, hopefully you've got a really good idea of what the whole project's going to look like. I personally turn that into a contract. Sometimes contractors will give you just sort of an invoice and you'll both sign it or, you know, an invoice or a bid or a scope and you sign it and that serves as a contract. I like to take it a step further and I have, I have my lawyer review the contract and I put that, I translate that entire scope into my contract and we already have negotiated how we're going to do the payment, how the draws are going to be done, when they're going to be done, what has to be done in order to get paid. All that stuff is ironed out. 
And then both of us sign the contract and then we, we plan the work. So the day that we close or maybe the next day work starts. And at that point, I'm just receiving information, making decisions, writing checks, you know, keeping track of all the accounting and then seeing it through. And then as we get closer to the end of the renovation, I bring in my real estate team, my realtors or realtor, and I have them, you know, do an analysis of how much we should sell it for, when we should start marketing, if we should do a coming soon campaign, then they'll schedule the photography and then we'll go live and try to sell it as quickly as we can. Got it. Wow. Okay. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I'd love to unpack. Um, at this point first, are you doing, are you managing your flips from out of state or are you actually going there on the ground during the, um, during the rehab portion of the project? Well, right now, the last two that I did, I fully managed from out of state. I will be, I, I have like periodic visits planned, um, but it's almost exclusively done from a distance with people on the ground that I can trust. Got it. So to that end, are you uh, essentially using the same contractors over and over at this point? Because, um, and that's what's given you the confidence and assurance to be able to manage from out of state? Um, I try to, I recently, um, had an issue with a, co- a team of contractors. Um, just, they just got overwhelmed and they weren't able to finish the project and it got really ugly when they got, um, you know, they got behind, they just, it just, it just turned into a, a bad relationship, um, as a result of like a lack of performance. And so I, you know, those guys were people that they, I thought I would use them going ahead, but they just got themselves in a bad position and their true colors kind of came through. So I won't be able to use them again. Um, I, the team that I use in Clarksville is pretty solid. I've got a, um, a contractor out there that I trust. He's a retired, um, Sergeant major. So he's a high, high ranking in the army. And he, um, he and I just communicate well. I really trust him. Um, in Nashville, I'm just, I'm not quite there yet in terms of contractors. I have some, like my HVAC guy is awesome. He does everything. My roofer is amazing um, and have a great relationship with those guys. But I haven't, I'm not to the point where I'd want to be. Um, and it's, that is a, a significant level of stress. So we're closing on another one on February 6th and we're using a new contractor. So there's a little bit of, you know, anxiety there. Um, so far, talking to him and watching him figure out the project and plan the project has been pretty telling. And I have a lot of confidence in him. And I've learned a lot from, you know, previous contractors and previous relationships. So to answer your question, I'm, you know, I'm kind of there, but I'm not quite where I'd want to be. And the other thing that I've learned, too, is that con- a contractor can do great work on one project and then he can he or she can do poorly on another project. And that might be just a circumstance of or situation like based on their circumstances, what they're personally going through, or maybe they just don't have the expertise or so anyway, so that's, you know, kind of a cautionary, um, cautionary thing there. But anyway, the contractors are, I'm just totally rambling right now. (laughs) No, no, no worries. Uh, I'm curious in, so for your Nashville projects where, you know, you're still figuring out, uh, you're still you're you're still trying to figure out who can be your recurring go-to folks. For those projects, are you still then flying in to um, stay closer to the projects, or are you also still managing those out of state? 
so I'm still managing those out of state and I just have multiple, um, you know, like checks and balances in place. I have, I have project managers, I have, I have the general contractor and then I have a project manager and then I also have inspectors. So anytime that somebody wants to be paid, it has to be inspected first. And they, you know, that's part of the contract development process. That's probably the most important part is having a conversation with the contractor about when they want to be paid, how they want to be paid, and then how, you know, your expectations on that end. So this last contractor that I had an issue with, that he would just send me a text and say, I need this much money. And he would expect it like within an hour. And I would have to explain to him over and over again that first you have to send me an invoice. Secondly, I have to get the work inspected. And then it's going to take a while to send you $18,000 or $20,000. It doesn't happen instantly. And he just couldn't wrap his head around that. And he would then say, well, I can't do any more work because I don't have any more money. And so he wasn't really managing the budget. He wasn't buying materials with the money I was giving him. He was constantly like one step behind. So having, we didn't have a great conversation about that up front. He sort of insinuated that he knew how the draws would work. And I guess I just took his word for it and it just bit us in the butt. And it was the same thing over and over again throughout that process. So I think that that, you know, having those checks and balances and making sure that everyone understands the process and the procedures is the most important part. Got it. I want to, I want to dive into con- managing contractors uh, in depth in a moment. Uh, but first more on sort of um, general rehab strategy uh, for each, even if you manage a project from out of state, are you at least at some point during the project lifestyle uh, life cycle uh, going in person to either do a final check or an initial kickoff or anything like that? Or are there projects uh, where you are totally remote from start to finish? So you actually never see the home in person. So the last two that I've done, I have not ever set foot in the house. Um, but thanks to technology, you know, pictures, FaceTime, Skype, all, all these kinds of things. Like I, I feel like I've been in the home plenty of times. I'm intimately familiar with every aspect of the home. Um, there was only one time during this last project that I thought about flying out there um, last minute, but I ultimately decided not to because it would have cost me about $1,200 and I would have rather paid the electrician that I needed to hire that $1,200. So, and that was just because my project manager happened to be out of town. Um, but I fully trust, I really trust my real estate agent. My stager actually, um, helps a lot of times with sort of the finishing, you know, she's usually in there when a lot of the touch-ups are being done, which is a really important part of the process. Um, especially if you have like a high end house. And so she's been really helpful and, you know, having these people in there constantly and feeding back to me reports, you know, based on what the contractors are doing. Because, you know, you get one side from the contractor and then you'll get something different from people who who aren't those contractors. Um, so I like to just keep as many people giving me information about the status as possible, um, which just kind of helps me with my peace of mind and understanding what's really going on with the project. Um, but that has bit, you know, bit me in the butt a couple of times. Like one time, um, my real estate agent's assistant was walking through the house, um, getting it ready for someone to, to show it to somebody. 
And the light fixture right inside the front door hadn't been installed yet. And it was just sitting on the floor. And so she said to the contractor, she said, put that under the sink or put it away in a cabinet because um, we've got somebody walking through the house. And so later when I found out that there was just wires sticking out of the ceiling, you know, that light fixture never got installed. My contractor said, well, Ashley told me that we didn't have to install that. And I was like, well, she, what she meant was just put it away for now. So it's not a tripping hazard when someone walks in the door, but you still need to install that per contract, you know, to complete the flip. So that's just an example of one of the times where, you know, there's been too many chiefs who aren't me. And sometimes the contractors, especially if it benefits them or if it's easy for them, if somebody makes a comment that they can run with, they will. Got it. Um, at this point, where's your deal flow mostly come from, coming from? Oh, lots of lots of people. I've got um, three different wholesalers that feed me deals. I've got a team of realtors in Clarksville and another team in Nashville that are feeding me deals. Um, I just occasionally will look around on uh, Facebook Marketplace, which is a great place to find for sale by owners um, or even very um, – very motivated sellers and Craigslist too, which Craigslist, you just have to be a little bit wary of. Um, it's easier to vet people on Facebook. Um, so yeah, I, th there's not a day goes that goes by that I don't get a deal in my email or in my, you know, text message. It's, and that's just because of the relationships that I've developed and people know what I'm looking for, where I'm looking. And so when they see something, they think, Oh, Aaron, Aaron will, Aaron might like this or Aaron would jump on this. And send it over. And then they also kind of, a lot of those people know sort of my system and the way that I do things and they'll be prepared to, you know, with that information. Got it. So it sounds like you're not really purchasing off the MLS. It's all off market pretty much. Pretty much. I have, um, found a couple on the MLS. Um, but really to get that, like sort of, you need to be at like the 70% market value typically just to make it worth the flip because flips are, you know, it's very expensive to sell a house. It's very expensive to get financing. So you have to have a good amount of wiggle room, which you can't, you absolutely can find that on the MLS, but in, a lot of times it's easier to find it off market. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. A lot of sense. Uh, okay. So, um, when you are thinking about making an offer on a fixer property and it sounds like particularly in situations where you're not going to visit in person, then you're having an inspector go out to do the walkthrough due diligence on your behalf. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And so are you hiring basically a, you know, um, a, like a, a, a vendor that specializes in property inspections or a dedicated HVAC inspector, et cetera, to um, assess and audit all the systems? No. So I actually used to, used to hire an inspector, um, every time, but I've learned that con at least in my experience, I'm sure this isn't, this doesn't apply everywhere, but contractors tend to know more about, um, you know, about the systems and about the state of the house and about what it's going to cost to bring it up to life, um, than an inspector will. And I, I just actually got a house inspected um, this past week because we bought it. Um, we bought it from a distance, our one year warranty, our one first, it was a new build. So we had a one year warranty and that is coming to expire here in February. So I, since I've never lived in the house 
I've stepped in the house like twice. I, I got an inspection done on it. And the inspection ca- report came back and it's like, you know, there may be a, uh, there may be a defect here, but you need to get it, you know, you need to get it inspected by someone who specializes in this or someone who's trained in this. And so that's typically what you get with an inspection. Um, you get sort of, this needs to be further analyzed. And so I've just kind of found those reports to be pretty useless. <laughs> so I sort of skipped that part go straight to the contractor or the general contractor because they're the ones who can not only tell you what the issue is, but they can tell you how much it's going to cost to get it to the point where it needs to be. Do you uh, do you bring in a few people to basically get a second and third opinion when this happens? Um, I guess, how do you manage the conflict of interest that can arise if you just have a contractor who might actually get the work also be diagnosing the problem too? Well, that, so that is a very difficult, that is a real, is hard. Um, I think that, so we just got sort of a scope of work from this project that we're going to close on, on the 6th of February. And he gave us sort of an idea of what each system, what each general, um, you know, thing is going to cost. And he said he overestimated them because there's only, you know, there's only so much he really knows and he'd rather be at the top than, you know, us have to increase our budget, which I very much appreciate. But just looking at that, I can tell when things are high, um, you know, just based on my experience. So he said in there, he said doors would cost $6,000. And I exactly, exactly. I know that there's no way that doors in this type of house, it is, it is a very much a starter home. You know, if we had to pay a hundred dollars for an interior door, that would be a lot of money. Um, and if we had to pay, you know, over $300 for any exterior door, that would be a lot. So there's no way we're going to come even close to that 6,000. And so I went back to him and I said, you know, what's this about? And he said, well, a lot of the, he said, the door frames are, they're just significantly damaged. And they're also, every door frame is sort of custom. Um, and so he's like, we have to take all the doors off all the frames and we have to cut them out to put a standard size door in there. Otherwise, we'd have to go and get a custom door, a specially made door, which is going to cost way more. Um, but anyway, he did admit that that was still high. And, you know, he's he's like, We're, we'll just kind of have to cross that bridge as we get in there. Because like he said, every door is a different size. And I've actually encountered that same issue on another flip as well. Um, so I think you just kind of have to have that conversation, keep, you know, keep the conversation open Um, but then at the same time, when I have, uh, when I have a budget and I know what I need to do to make the deal work and I have the return on investment that I'm looking for and the contractor is going to do, you know, what he needs to, to get that to pass an inspection on the, on the sale side and get it up to par with the comparables. I don't care how much money he makes, (laughs) you know, I don't care if he's buffered his numbers or if he's making, a little bit, he's skimming a little off the top. I, that doesn't really bother me as long as he's doing the work, he's getting it done, he's he's being honest in the process, and the numbers work for both of us. Makes sense. Okay, so uh, it sounds like you, anyway, contractors are going to be able to give you a, um, a more useful inspection type of opinion once they see it, including at least what they estimate it's going to cost. What are the common or, you know, frequent problems that, um, given your experience, you're now attuned 
to be paying attention to when you're invest when you're looking at the or when you're uh, reading the the inspection report for the major systems of the house. Uh, so, um, uh, like the, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, at this point, you probably have developed some sense about uh, what are the common problems that can occur for the major systems of the house, and maybe even have a mental compartmentalization of of okay, this is expensive, medium, or you know. Uh, not too expensive, just so we can get a, or so folks listening who are maybe earlier in their real estate investing or flipping careers than you are. Um, what are some of the common issues that you you've now become attuned to paying attention to that can arise uh, in these type of situations? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and there's certain like there's certain things that apply kind of to a lot of different properties, and there's others that don't at all. So in my experience. There's no standard for plumbing. Um, you just, I, there's no way for me at least to just gauge what, what plumbing, you know, what issues we're going to come across with plumbing. Um, I've, I've worked in houses that were built in the 2000s that have had major plumbing issues. And I've worked with houses that were built in 1930 that have had no plumbing issues. So I don't have anything really to say on plumbing. Electrical is a lot different. I think that if, as long as it's been upgraded or built after like 1970, then you know that the wires in there are, are usable, are, are up to code, um, are going to pass an inspection if it was done right at that point. Um, if it was done before that, it's probably going to have to be completely rewired because the rules have changed, um, about what kind of wiring you can use now. And so that can be $10,000, um, even in a single apartment, just depending on what it is. Um, but then a lot of times we'll get into a house and the breaker box will just be a mess. Um, and I used to think that that costs a lot of money, but it, it usually doesn't. It's usually $700 to $900, um, depending on the situation. Rewiring a particular light could cost as little as $100, um, can cost as much as $800. Um, so it's it's sometimes you can kind of estimate a little bit, but other times, you know, you won't know until you're really gotten into it. Um, HVAC is pretty straightforward. Um, you know, if you're doing a flip and the HVAC is 12 years old, you're probably just going to have to replace it. Even if it works, if you're trying to sell it at the top of the market, you probably have to have a new system. And that's not as expensive as most people would think, you know, 3,500 to 4,500 for a new unit in a small house. The duct work is what can be really expensive. That can double your, um, your HVAC budget if there is no ductwork in the house, but typically it's rare that we can't utilize the existing ductwork. Or if we are getting into a house and there's no HVAC at all, we know going into it that we have to pay for the unit and the ductwork. Um, but to me, that's, that's the best case scenario because you know exactly what you're getting into. You know, that number is not going to change. Um, but when you go into a house and it has you know, a six old, six year old unit, and you think it's probably going to be fine, it will just need a quick service, and you estimate $500, and then come to find out that you need another unit, and you need a splitter, and you need to fix this ductwork, and now your $500 just became $10,000. Um, you know, that can be, that's obviously a huge setback. So really, I guess I'm saying <laughs> there is no rule of thumb, there's no standard, every single house is different. I think what you, what any flipper, any investor really needs to wrap their head around is sticking to a budget. So 
no matter what, if you, you know, you have a budget and you go above in this area, it has to come from somewhere else. There might be situations where no matter what, you're going to have to increase your budget. But I think before you go there, the mentality has to be that it has to come from somewhere else. So let's say you encountered that situation that I just said, where you thought it was just going to be a service on the HVAC, but you end up spending $9,500 extra. And then let's say you had $15,000 set aside for the kitchen because you were going to replace all the cabinets. You know, you were just going to do a full gut. Well, now maybe you have to keep those cabinets. Maybe you have to rebuild out the base of them because there's some water damage and then you have to paint them. But you might you might save four or $5,000 there. So the point is, you know, you're not always going to know. You're, you're never going to know 100% about what you're getting into. Uh, but you just have to ha- be prepared to adjust and um, just get the right people in there from the beginning. But that still isn't necessarily going to mean that you're going to know exactly what you're getting into. Yeah, that's a really great point. And sticking to the budget is, uh, you know, probably one of the being disciplined about that, I guess, is one of the best ways to keep yourself out of trouble. So to that end, are there rules of thumb that you uh, have for in terms of thinking about how much money to budget for a rehab? Like, should folks think about it in terms of a dollar per square foot or a percent of the purchase price? And as a parallel to that, also uh, how you think about budgeting time for the rehab from the time you close to the time you sell? Yeah, so that's let's talk about that time thing first because that's there's really, I've kind of learned a really cool way to deal with that. So when I get a timeline from my contractors, I build that into the schedule. And then I always motivate them to finish the job early with some sort of monetary reward. You know, if you finish early at all, whether it's one day or two weeks, you get a $500 bonus or, you know, something that makes sense. It And it's sort of based on your holding costs, right? So if you're, if you have a house that you're paying $5,000 a month to hold on to, you know, that's what your interest is costing. That's what your insurance is costing and the utilities and your person goes two weeks over, that's $2,500. So I build in their um, like motivators, but I also build in their penalties. So if you're more than two weeks late, I always give them a two week window, sometimes more if you're looking at a very long, you know, 20 week rental or something like that, you might have to build in more. But I motivate them to get it done early. And I discourage them from dragging their feet and not getting it done, you know, financially. And that's something that contractors are not going to be willing to sign off on from the beginning. Um, but you just have to have to figure out how to kind of sway, you know, sway their thinking and just say, this is to protect me and my investment. And this is just to make sure that you are looking out for what's best for me, which is to get the job done as quickly as possible. And if you do that, I will take care of you and I will repay you in kind. So that's kind of a cool way to help manage the timeline. But again, you have to be reasonable. Um, if things do come up, you just have to make sure that you have an open line of communication with your contractor because if you have some major setback, they're not going to be able to still meet the timeline most likely. So just have to have that conversation. Um, and then as far as the – what was the other part of the question? Budgeting money. Okay, so budgeting money is – I think that some sometimes I will use a price per square foot – initially, like before I, before we've gotten in there, before we really know what we're looking at, if I just have, I know very little or no, I've been told it needs a full gut 
and it's a C-class property on this side of Nashville, I know that I can sort of apply $55 per square foot to take it down to the studs. Um, but that depends on your area. That depends on the type of property. Um, it's So it's, it's kind of like, you know, that 1% rule, that 2% rule. It applies as an initial assessment analysis, but it's, it's not really useful much beyond that. Um, so I think it's, it can be used to decide whether or not you want to look further. Um, but it's certainly not something that you should be basing your entire project off of. So how do you get from that initial, you know, swag to something that's more concrete that you then actually have to stick to? So the initial comes usually before I, decide to really like throw everything at it. So like I said, I get these properties in my, you know, text or email every single day. And so I'm probably analyzed two to five a day, just depending on what we're looking at. And so I need to have a really quick way to look at them. So I, I get the comps and I, I estimate what's needed. Um, and you can a lot of times tell from the pictures, um, or, you know, a, a, a lot of times a wholesaler will put together a, an analysis packet so you can kind of have an idea whether you're looking at more of a cosmetic flip or a full gut, um, and you can sort of base it on that. So you just upper estimate what you think you're looking at, and then you make sure that you can still make the numbers work based on what you can sell it on at the end. And so if the numbers work and you get to your the return that you're looking for, then I would get my contractor out there. I would you know try to schedule an open house or a walkthrough or whatever. And then we would do all of our due diligence. But that part where you just have that assumption, like the dollar, the price per square foot assumption doesn't go any further than your very initial analysis. So by the time you write an offer, have you pretty much already built up a pretty detailed budget for like a final budget? So you know that number, you've done kind of your uh, the analysis before you uh, uh, submit the offer? Yes, exactly. You have a pretty good idea of what you're looking at as a whole. Got it. Okay, cool. So we talked about um, plumbing, HVAC, electrical. Are there any other foundational systems, common problems that you see uh, in them? And, and if so, what are they? So the, I guess the next big ticket items are going to be the roof. Um, you know, you want to just get a general idea of the age of the roof and the shape of the roof. Um, and then you're looking for any kind of soft spots in the floor and the roof, because even if you know, you, you know, you know, you're, there's a soft spot in the, in the kitchen and you know what it's going to cost to replace or reinforce those floor joists. If you don't know what's causing that issue, there's no way you can budget an amount. Um, you know, is it coming, is it because of the foundation? Is it because there's moisture under there? Is it termites? Like if you don't know what the issue is. If you don't know what the root cause of it is, it's going to be hard for you to figure out what it's going to cost you to replace it. Okay. Um, uh, Any issues that you commonly see when it comes to foundation? No, I've only done one flip that had foundation issues and it scared the crap out of me. But I bought it because the wholesale company already had a, a foundation guy out there and he they like attached a bid to the property analysis packet and it was probably one of the most straightforward things I've ever done he went in the day of closing 
got it all done. And two days later, we were doing the renovation as if there was nothing wrong with the foundation. So I say that, you know, don't be afraid of foundation issues, but make sure that you know what the actual fix is, which just requires a foundation specialist. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, so now that having, having done this many times, do you tend to execute, um, uh, you know, either if not the same rehab plan or design for every project, then at least a very similar plans, or do you tend to vary it up? Uh, and what makes you decide one way or the other? So mine are all, they're very different and it's always dependent on the house and the comps. So, you know, occasionally I I try not to move walls if I don't have to. I try not to rearrange a lot of stuff because that requires permits, which take more time, which can cost more money, inspections, things like that. So I avoid those things as much as possible. And then I just try to, to augment the existing existing structure in the existing, you know, existing house. I just try to make that house better. Um, it's rare that I would just try to go in there and rearrange everything and, you know, take it, you know, to go to the point where I'm moving things around, but occasionally you'll need to add a bathroom just based on what the comps are. You know, you might have a fairly big house that has three bedrooms and one bathroom and just, doesn't really make sense from a buyer's perspective. So it might make a good rental, but most most buyers, most homeowners want at least two bathrooms. So in that case, you need to look at kind of the bang for your buck. You need to decide if you do add a bathroom, how much is that going to cost? And then how much is that going to increase your equity? How much is that going to allow you to sell it for? So if, if it's going to cost you $15,000 to build a whole new bathroom, add a whole new bathroom, but you can sell for $25,000 more, that's a no-brainer to me. But if you have to build a new bathroom for $15,000 and you can only sell for $15,000 more, that's going to require a little bit more analysis because now you're adding more time to the project, which increases your holding costs, and then you might, you may not even get that money back. So I basically what I try to do is just keep the house as close to what it looks like as possible and just update it, bring it back to life and, you know, make it look better than what we're competing with down the street. Got it. Okay. So now I'd love to turn uh, to the um, sort of the intricacies or skills involved in, in working with and managing contractors. Um, Can you talk a little bit about best practices that you've learned for how to find quality contractors who charge reasonable rates in the first place and how to vet them effectively? Yeah, that's a loaded question (laughs) because I've done this before. I've gone through the whole process and then hired somebody and they've, you know, not come through or walked off with some money. So I say that because there is no guarantee. Um, You know, people are people and there's only so much you can kind of know up front or, you know, really know before putting the pressure on someone, which is really when things typically go south is when they get overwhelmed or there's just too much pressure on them and things just get ugly there. So I think the best way, the best thing you can do is get recommendations, get referrals, find people that have used these contractors 
know them fairly well and can vouch for them personally. I've sort of learned that the most important thing when you're vetting a contractor is that they're a good person. I think that um, if they're if they're a quality person, they do what they say they're going to do, um, and you can trust them. You can tr- you can take their word. That to me is almost more important than the end state. You know their work their work quality, and I I think that because like I said before, quality can change over time. Um, but as an investor who's got a lot of money invested in any one project you need to know that what they're telling you is true and you need to know that you can trust them to give you the real deal of what's going on with that property. So the best way to do that is to, you know, find somebody who can vouch for them. And then you, that's when your sort of um, investigation begins. You want to check all their reviews. You want to check the Better Business Bureau. You want to ask anyone and every one that you can about them. Um, Facebook is a great resource for this. There's a lot of investor pages. And what I will do is I'll put out there, hey, I'm looking for somebody to fill a pool. You know, who who do you guys know? And a lot of times you will get the same person repeated over and over and over again. And then maybe you go back to the person who tagged them and you ask them their experience with it. And then you look at the reviews that people have posted on their website and on their Facebook page And you kind of go from there. And then you set up an interview, um, which for me is typically over the phone. Um, But if you can do it in person, that's a really great opportunity to get to know them. I think that you can tell a lot about a person based on their physical appearance. You know, if they, if they look put together, Um, you can tell a lot about, uh, in my experience, a contractor based on the state of their car. You know, if there's just trash all over the car, that's probably what your project is going to look like. So, you know, these might, is it's kind of a little bit judgmental, um, but, you know, this is the person that you're going to be entrusting with a huge asset. And so you need to be judgmental and you need to be, to really try to get to the, get to who this person is, what kind of workmanship they're going to do. If you schedule a phone call with them or an interview with them and they don't show up, then I, I would throw that person out the window, figuratively speaking. <laughs> immediately. You know, if they, if that's how they're going to do for their initial interview, it's not going to get better once you hire them. Right. Do you ever use these services like, um, Thumbtack or Yelp, uh, for finding leads? Uh, and if not, what are some of the drawbacks that you have found with them? I've used them, um, usually like after I, I get a referral or after I find somebody. And that's just part of like, me checking up on them, checking their reviews, seeing how they're rating. But I've never actually used that to find a lead, I don't think. Got it. Okay. So after you make initial contact and you decide um, you would like to work with the contractor, what are some of the best practices that you have discovered for you know managing the project and managing them? So... It's this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, where you just have that open communication. Um, I think together you develop sort of reporting requirements. Um, that's totally a military term, but um, you have to decide collectively how you have to let them know how you want to receive information, you know, on how often and what format. Um, and sort of give them left and right limits for making decisions. You know, like you might tell them, 
hey, if it costs under $500, like go ahead and do it. But if it costs more than 500, I need to know right away. And I'm going to make the decision on that. You know, whatever the Whatever their limits are, their restrictions are, it's just important that you both know that. Um, and you want to encourage them to over-communicate, especially if you're doing it from a distance. And then, so, like I have found, because I've had some issues with uh, people sending me information, and I will just send them an example of what I'm looking for. I will say, I want to know, you know, every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, what you've accomplished since your last report with pictures and I want to know what your goal is and what you're anticipating that you're going to accomplish until your next report. And I want to know what issues you have and you know how I can help. And I will sometimes have to show them what that looks like. And that has been helpful for me to sort of build a template. And then it's because sometimes I think you, they get so overwhelmed by sort of the admin side of it. And you want to be careful not to do that because a lot of these contractors, they might be really good at what they do, but admin and paperwork and all that can be really stressful for them. And so you're not trying to add to their plate, but you're just trying to make sure that everyone's on the same page and you just want to make that as seamless and as simple as possible. And so I think that bringing them into that conversation and asking them how they'd like to do it is a really good place to start. Even if you build a template, have you found success in getting them to give you those kind of status reports? I, I personally have never been able to do that. And I've managed so, I manage my fair share of contractors too. Right, right. So in the short term, yes. I like I will send that to them and then the next two times they'll do it and then they'll kind of fall off the wagon. And so what I've kind of learned is when they do something that I'm grateful for or like, approve of, I guess, I will make a really, really big deal out of it <laughs> and really praise them for their efforts and what they've done. And I find that that helps to kind of encourage them to keep doing it. But it is a it is an endless struggle. It is a vicious cycle. And it's just you do the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, they're they're trade tradespeople. So they're good at the craft, but they're not administrators, uh, as you said. Exactly. You mentioned you try to get them to um, sign a contract, which you would have reviewed with your lawyer. Have you been able to get them to do that um, consistently? Uh, I I find it hard to even, I don't know, I find it hard to even uh, uh, get them to, even even the ones who are really good at the craft, I find it hard to get them to uh, even just articulate and state clearly by email, okay, these are the things that we're agreeing to, even just in a simple email. So I was curious, like, how um, uh, how readily they accept a legalese written contract uh, versus bulk at it? Um, it's, I think it depends on the person. Typically, you know, they, they'll kind of come back with questions. They want to discuss it further. You know, maybe they don't understand it. But I, it's, to me, it's not an option. And I've... I've learned, you know, the hard way what can happen if you don't have a contract. And so I tell them that right from the beginning on the very first conversation I have with them, I tell them every single thing that we do will be contracted. We will have ever, you know, we'll all sign it. My lawyer will review it. And I always tell them, you're welcome to have your lawyer review this. And I do always you find just that try they have lawyers. No, typically no. Um, and that's actually what happened with my last my last contractor that I kind of had to cut ties with, he was recommended to me by my lawyer 
who I trust, who I know um, has a nice house. And this person, this contractor had done work on their, his house and he recommended them to me. And so I trusted him. I took his word for it. He signed the contract and everything. And then when things kind of went south, I went back to my lawyer and I said, you know, I had, I need to know what my options are. Like they're not, they're way behind schedule. They're not communicating with me. And he said to me, well, I've actually represented them before. So it's a conflict of interest and I can't help you. And so that was very frustrating. Um, and I, I learned a lot in that process. Um, but that the lawyer wasn't necessarily re- representing them. He just had helped them in a tough spot in the past, which I kind of wish my contractor had told me that that, or I mean, my lawyer had told me that they've been in some legal trouble in the past because that might have changed whether or not I use them. Sure. But um, anyway, that's yeah. I don't. They typically don't have a lawyer. But I think when you when you just sort of tell them that, like this is to protect both of us. And you're also welcome to develop your own contract that I will review and we can sign as well. Um, that usually kind of smooths it over a little bit. And then you also mentioned that um, you'll try to build in incentives to uh, get them to finish early or at least on time and maybe penalties if they go late. Have you found that contractors are accepting of the penalties side? No. <laughs> They always, always fight that. Um, so how do you which, how do you get them to adopt if if you're able to at all? So again, I just tell them, you know, this is really not it's really not an option. You know how if if I say to them, you know how put yourself in my shoes, how would you trust somebody with, you know, an an asset that costs four hundred thousand dollars? if they're not willing to commit to the timeline. And I just kind of say, how would you take that? And typically they kind of come around and they say, you know, um, that, you know, that makes sense. And a lot of times they'll ask me to push it out a little bit. The thing is like, even when you have that in writing, it's not even often enforceable. Yeah. It's hard. Um, Yeah. It's, I mean, there's so it's really frustrating, but contracts can, can be meaningless um, sometimes. It's just not worth pursuing, but uh, hopefully you at least get them into the right mindset to see, to say, to be more um, respectful of the deadline. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if nothing else, it sort of shows them that like, you're not messing around, you know, you're, you're going to have full control of this. And I think as a woman in, in a male dominated industry, I think that this helps me sort of set the stage from the beginning I think that a, a lot of times people expect me to be softer maybe or just easier to deal with. Um, and that's not the case at all. I'm very demanding. I'm very, you know, I'm going to hold you accountable. Um, and I think putting all that up front and letting people know that helps a lot and helps sort of make sure that we're on the same page. And I also struggle a lot with a lot of my contractors who are from Tennessee or Kentucky from the South because I'm from New York and I'm much more direct, I'm much more upfront than most people, especially Southern people. Um, and it's, it's something that I've had to like be very careful about and be really, um, you know, considerate of, but I do try to tell people upfront, like, this is who I am. This is how I'm going to manage this project. This is what you can expect from me. And, you know, if we have any issues, you need to bring them up. Um, in, in terms of you know paying an incentive to finish earlier on time, how do you keep them from doing a crappy job? You don't. 
I, I wish I had a better answer for that. So I think that's where sort of the inspections come in and, and just keeping a close eye on the project um, and just trying to figure it out before it's too late or before the damage is irreparable. Um, I've actually had to pursue an insurance claim um, against just poor worksmanship, but the claim only cover or the their insurance only covered accidental damage to a property or you know bodily injury to somebody on that property, and um, it's it's incredibly frustrating that a contractor can come in there and there's no repercussions when they do a crappy job. Um, so I think that you know having that checks and balance, making sure that they're not paid until you inspect it. Um, and then just, I've had to have the conversation many a times where someone tells me something's done or it's done to standard. And my stance is I'm the boss. This is my property. I hired you. I will decide if this is done. I will let you know when it's up to standard that we both agreed to in the beginning. Um, and so, you know, you can, you can say that all day, but there's only so much that you can do to, enforce quality worksmanship, um, unfortunately. So the sooner you can figure it out, the better. And then the sooner you can brush them along, you know, kind of take them out of the picture in whatever way you need to and start over with somebody else. How do you handle contractors who become less than responsive, but they're doing good work? If they're doing bad work, it's it's easy. You fire them. But if they're doing good work, but their communication sucks, which I've dealt with that before, how how do you handle that? In that case, I just have to get somebody else in there. Um, my sister lives in Nashville, and I have um, somebody who does my like social media and stuff like that. She lives in the area too. And then I have my realtor, my stager, and I might just have to have them go over there, just do a walkthrough and just take some pictures and let me know what's going on with it. Um, because I've found that like in that situation where you are happy with what they're doing and they're doing what you hired them to do, you're really just going to make them mad when you continue to push their buttons on something they're not comfortable with. And so I think, you know, them doing the quality work is what you're looking for. That's the end state. So if you have to pay somebody $50 once a week or twice a week to go in there and inspect it, I think that that's absolutely worth, you know, worth the money. Do you recommend generally hiring specialists for every single task or going with a generalist who can do a bunch of tasks, uh, even if they're not great at any one task? I think it depends on the project. Um, I think if you're looking at a very high-end flip um, in a a really affluent neighborhood where the buyers are going to be very particular, you need to go with the specialists. Um, I think that if it's it's a lower-end flip that you know, you have a pretty low budget on and and the finishings don't have to be perfect, then you can get away with the generalist. Um, I think you just have to kind of gauge that against your budget. I would say, you know, hire the best that your budget can accommodate. Yep. Makes sense. Uh, And I guess because you're managing from afar, um, this may be less relevant to you, but um, to the extent when you have done rehabs where you have been closely involved in person, are there skills that you recommend learning how to just do yourself and get handy at? Um, you know, as an investor, you're always balancing ROI on your time versus saving money. Uh, in your view, when is uh, when is it worth learning a DIY task yourself versus paying somebody else to do it? I think that totally depends on your situation and you know what your goals are. I th- when I first started out, the first flip that I did. I did, my dad and I did the majority of the work and it was because I didn't have the money. I didn't, 
I tried to hire a couple things out, um, but was unsuccessful because, I mean, some things I did hire out. I had to have somebody do the electrical. I had to have some plumbing done. Um, but I, and I, I brought a painter in, but I had a hard time getting people out there because I didn't have re- relationships with anybody. I would schedule people to come out and give me a bid and sometimes they would show up, but most of the time they wouldn't. And then a lot of times they'd come out, they'd give me an estimate, I would hire them and then they wouldn't show up. So I kind of learned that on my first flip, how important it is to have the right team um, and have the right contacts. But I think now that I've moved away from, you know, being in the same town or in the same area as where I'm flipping, the time freedom that that has given me has taught me so much. You know, I've If I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have been able to launch my coaching program. I wouldn't have been able to do some online education. I just wouldn't have had the bandwidth or the brain power or the time to do that. Um, So, and I've also had to really learn to trust, you know, I've always been a pretty good delegator, but not on important tasks. Um, So I've really had to learn to trust that it's getting done and it's getting done well. Um, And then also accept that your returns are going to go down a little bit if you're hiring every single thing out. Um, and I actually had to just hire somebody to put two light switch covers. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have taken me three to five minutes, but it cost me like 150 bucks. Um, so, you know, it is, that's, that's just dependent on what you want to do. If you want to be active, if you want to be managing the projects, you can definitely save a lot of money on those types of things and you'll be in more control. I, I guess, um, maybe the angle I'm, I'm curious about is, um, the the rehabber who prefers to hire it out but would reluctantly do it and it, you know has the ability to do it or at least the ability to learn is not somebody who's like oh i can't touch a hammer um or maybe the right way to ask it is what is the hardest what are the highest roi diy things that one can learn uh if you you know get in a jam and you need to do it yourself um i would say probably some of the finishing stuff, um, the light switch covers, the outlet covers, maybe installing some of the light fixtures. Um, I, you know, paint, painting is harder than most people think, you know, being a good painter is, is more than just being able to open a can of paint. So that's not something I've ever been good at. So I would never do it. Um, but I would say, yeah, some of the finishing stuff, um, that's really been my experience with, with trying to kind of wrap some stuff up. Yeah, I uh, I tried painting my own ceiling once. I'll never do that again. <laughs> the ceiling is so hard. Oh, it's backbreaking, it, backbreaking. Yeah, yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. Um, okay. Do you have any advice for how folks can save money when it comes to buying product and materials and supplies, uh, whether it's buying in bulk or, um, you know, buying synthetic, less expensive stuff? Like, do you have any tips for how to save money on 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 actual product and materials? I honestly just go and try to find the sales. Um, so if I need an appliance package, I will buy it. Like you, there's almost always a major holiday when you're doing a renovation. So you buy your appliance package when Lowe's is having their big Memorial Day sale or whatever. Um, you And then when it comes to like flooring or carpet, I almost always will just see what's on sale or – Another something I've been really successful with is just buying what's in stock that the that store is trying to get rid of. And a lot of times it's because they have like a small amount of something. So maybe they'll have 
400 square foot of this type of vinyl plank, but they'll sell it to you for $1.25 a square foot. Um, and you can, you can accommodate that in a small space. That's not going to make your house look really disjointed. Um, that's kind of where I've had success before is just buying, um, stuff that's already discounted or stuff that a store is trying to liquidate. Um, but I, I don't think there's a huge difference in, material cost. I mean, if you're within a particular market, so unless you have like a, a link to a, a source or you can bring something in from outside, I don't know that it's always going to be worth it for you to spend the time on finding that stuff. Um, that being said, you can find some really awesome stuff on Facebook marketplace. You can find some, some great, like brand new stainless steel appliances, or you can find entire sets of cabinets, um, that you can, you know, you can really save some money on that stuff. Are you buying mostly from like Home Depot, Lowe's or specialty stores or wholesaler, uh, wholesalers? Uh, where do you buy your product from? A lot of my flooring comes from um, this tiny little town outside of Nashville. It's kind of a drive, but they there's no one that can compete with their prices. Um, and a, appliances typically would come from Lowe's or Home Depot. Um and then I think it really depends on who the contractor is. You know, like we have a couple of different people that do glass and a couple of different people that do windows. Um, but the prices aren't, they're really not that much different. Um, and so sometimes you might just, you might go with somebody because they'll deliver it for free. Um, even if you pay a little bit more, cause that, that can be really helpful. <clears throat> I think it depends. I know it's not a very good answer <clears throat> and it also depends on who your contractors have used to and who they're comfortable with. Got it. Well, listen, Aaron, this has been super helpful and insightful. And I think the one of the takeaways I have is that, you know, is also consistent with my own experience doing a bunch of remodels is that, you know, there is money to be made, but it's not easy work. And uh, there's all kinds of ways that things can go south. And you just have to be very vigilant and learn from experience and get better and get better the next time. But, you know, there's still it's still a good business. So, um, uh, you know, hopefully this does, I know there's been like a lot of sort of cautionary, maybe even scare tales, but hopefully it doesn't dissuade folks from uh, trying to learn, uh, uh, you know, how how to do this stuff because you know it's, it can be a good business for sure. And thank you, yeah, thank you absolutely. very much for taking the time to share with us. Where can people find out more about you and your work and services? Yeah, so I've got a website where all of my online courses and information about my one-on-one -on -one coaching is, and that's bcglobalinvestments.com. And then I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, just under Aaron Helly. All right. Well, we'll make sure to link to that stuff in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much again for sharing your experiences and insights and wisdom with us today. And, um, you know, hope folks get a lot of value from, uh, from this discussion. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. All right. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's guest interview and got a lot of value and insights from it. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. Would love for you to not miss any episodes because the Hack Your World podcast has a mix of action-packed solo shows where I walk you through specific strategies and tactics step-by-step, -step, as well as guests who share their expertise about specific areas of personal finance, and finally, profile interviews of business owners who are trying to turn their side hustles into fully financially self-sustaining passive income streams. We break down exactly what they do, how they do it, and how much they're earning. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of that great content. 
Also, would love if you could help me out and take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a podcast review. It helps to support this podcast and it helps other people who are looking for topics like this find the podcast. And I really appreciate it if you could take a minute and just leave an honest review. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Hack Your Wealth podcast with Andrew Chen. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content.